It is Wednesday, June 8th, 2022, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us today. On our show, we're going to explore the work being done to have Arkansans decide if recreational marijuana should be legal. That's in just a moment. Later, a break from work as the hosts of Resilient Black Women, Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson, discuss the value and definition of rest. And the United States Constitution at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. I'll have more about that in about 15 minutes. First, that statewide initiative petition drive to take to place the question of an Arkansas constitutional amendment to legalize recreational marijuana for adults on the November ballot is progressing. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the campaign, Responsible Growth Arkansas, has until July 8th to reach their goal. Contract workers with verified Arkansas sort and box stacks of signed recreational marijuana petitions inside temporary quarters in downtown Fayetteville this morning. This place also serves as base camp for field canvassers like Jeff Hollis, who, with Validation Arkansas coordinator Ellis Hairston, are questing for signatures on the Fayetteville Town Square. Hi, sir. We're collecting signatures to get recreational marijuana on the ballot. Interested in signing? What county are you registered in? Washington. Thank you, sir. Okay, wonderful. Well, we are collecting signatures sure. to pass recreational marijuana. I will definitely sign. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, here. Let me actually move you over sheets. Okay. We're, we're collecting these by county. So I have oh. a few Benton, a few Crawford, but you're in Washington. Okay, perfect. So I'll need your signature, your printed name, date of birth. Cute dog, what's the name? Uh, it's Walter. Walter, I love it. More than 200 responsible Growth Arkansas canvassers are fanned out across the state with additional campaign offices in Little Rock, Bentonville, Jonesboro, and Fort Smith. According to state election laws, they must gather a quota of signatures from at least 15 counties. To date, we've collected over 75,000 and we're picking up thousands of signatures a day. Eddie Armstrong, a former Democrat state representative, is chairman of Responsible Growth Arkansas, a ballot petition initiative campaign to pass the proposed Arkansas Adult Use Cannabis Amendment. The goal is 89,151, and we are well on target to exceed our goal. Armstrong says it took a year to formulate a strategy, and the campaign so far has spent over a million dollars. A third of that paid to political consulting firm Advanced Micro-Targeting in Dallas. For your listeners, if they don't know, you know, the passage of this amendment will authorize possession of one ounce of usable cannabis by adults over 21 um, and the cultivation sales of cannabis um, by our licensed facilities across the state. It sounds far-fetched, legalizing recreational pot in Arkansas, a politically conservative state. But seven years ago, voters approved Amendment 98, legalizing medical marijuana. That industry currently serves more than 82,000 registered patients through eight cultivation facilities, 38 dispensaries, and four licensed processors. Last year, Arkansas medical marijuana sales totaled nearly $270 million. $34 million of that was collected as state tax revenue. This recreational marijuana legalization initiative proposes to triple the number of marijuana dispensaries and more than double cultivation sites. The focus was on lowering the cost for the patients that were currently acquiring it and potentially may need it the most as we move forward. Once we have passage, you will 
have a new market of consumers well into the hundreds of thousands of individuals um, now joining the 80,000 medical marijuana patients and buying um, these products. Armstrong says rules will be formulated by the state to establish a recreational marijuana industry in part using existing medical marijuana infrastructure. You will be a part of receiving a license for the opportunity to sell recreational or adult use cannabis to any general consumer that may come into your facility. You will still be responsible to show ID. As you know, this is 21 and older, um, and those products will be sold, and you can be able to identify those with bud tenders once you enter dispensaries in the future. And then the next wave of that, you will see um, applicants come to the table and apply for the remaining licenses to get to you know, our said count that will be allotted for new dispensaries in the state. And then that application process, those new licensees will be selected through a lottery and have the opportunity to open up their brick-and-mortar facilities across the state and in particular regions and zones. If this citizen initiative succeeds, the Alcoholic Beverage Control Division of the Department of Finance and Administration will regulate issuance and renewal of licenses for both recreational and medical cultivation facilities, which are barred from operating near schools, churches, daycares, or developmentally disabled facilities. Any new dispensaries must be located at least five miles from existing dispensaries. Armstrong says legalizing recreational marijuana in Arkansas will work to keep marijuana patronage and profits in state while cultivating cannabis tourism. Visitors and guests that come into the state for tourism will be able to go into stores no different than, you know, our beverage or liquor stores, show your ID and purchase product. And all of those products will be, you know, identified and notated when a consumer goes into any of the new dispensaries or the current existing dispensaries that will be um, selling these products as it comes into the market after it passes. According to language in the proposed ballot initiative posted on ResponsibleGrowthArkansas.com, which amends Arkansas's Medical Marijuana Amendment 98, the tax on medical marijuana will be eliminated to reduce patient costs. Recreational marijuana sales will be fully taxed, however, with a portion donated to bolster law enforcement salaries, support Arkansas drug courts, and fund University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, Medical Services, and Research. Armstrong says the Arkansas Medical Marijuana Commission will provide oversight to the Arkansas recreational marijuana industry. And then you've got an additional oversight committee at the legislative level the um, Legislative Oversight Committee for the Medical Marijuana Industry, which likely will take on some sort of new form in 2023 as we go to uh, uh, an adult use industry, um, should this be passed by the people. Once the petition quota is met, the ballot measure must be certified by August 25th by Arkansas Secretary of State Leslie Rutledge in order to appear on the November 4th general election ballot. Rutledge has rejected previous citizen initiatives to legalize recreational marijuana before. This campaign, however, is well-researched and financed, Armstrong says, having raised more than $1.8 million dollars. Well, we haven't ran away from the fact that, yes, we have gotten support from the um, folks within the medical marijuana industry 
um, space, both dispensary owners and cultivators. Uh, and the support really that's shown the biggest remarkable uh, impact here and motivation for contributions as I, you know, work the phones and talk to potential donors um, to this campaign is the support of, you know, the Arkansas voters who believe this is good for the state. Armstrong says ancillary medical marijuana businesses in Arkansas are also supporting this campaign. Supporters from all facets of this industry um, take an interest and, and want to begin and or have donated to the campaign. A late February poll conducted by Talk Business and Politics and Hendricks College found that a majority, 53% of Arkansas voters, support legalizing recreational marijuana for adults age 21 and over. The same percentage of voters who approved medical marijuana in 2016. That polling has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.4%. If the Arkansas Adult Use Cannabis Amendment measure makes the November 4th ballot, a simple majority of voters will be required to pass it. Arkansas is one of only 15 states where voters can propose amendments to the state constitution, reflected in the state motto, Renyat Populis, or the People Rule. But also, on November 4th, voters will have to decide three ballot measures referred by the majority conservative Arkansas legislature. If passed, one will require citizen ballot initiatives to be approved by at least 60 percent majority of voters in future. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Backers of another petition drive say that they have enough signatures to place Sunday liquor sales before voters in Rogers and Bentonville. A press release from the group Keep Our Dollars Local reports efforts by groups in each city have collected more than the required number of signatures to ensure a vote, though those petitions will need to be examined and certified by municipal officials. Supporters of the petition drive say that the signatures were collected between early April and mid-May. The petitions must have signatures from 15% of the qualified voters who cast ballots in the last gubernatorial election in each city. That's just more than 2,400 needed signatures in Rogers and just fewer than 2,000 in Bentonville. And both Arkansas outdoor track and field teams are at the NCAA championships in Eugene, Oregon today. Women's team ranked sixth in the country. The men 21st championships last through Saturday. The Razorback baseball team's quest to return to the College World Series continues Saturday morning in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The Razorbacks will meet North Carolina in the best of three Super Regional with the winner advancing to the College World Series in Omaha. Yesterday, the NCAA announced the starting times for the games this weekend. Game 1 will have a first pitch at 10 a.m. Central Time Saturday. Game 2 scheduled to begin at noon Sunday. If a third game is necessary, that first pitch on Monday will be at a time to be determined later. All three games are scheduled to be shown on either ESPN or ESPN2. The two programs, Arkansas and North Carolina, have met just once before. That was an Arkansas 7-3 win in the 1989 College World Series. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Amenities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus on-site fitness facilities are available. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for information. KUAF is supported by Arsegas, a family-owned and operated coffee roastery with five cafes in downtown and South Fayetteville, including the Mill District on South School, offering seasonal menus, cocktails, state-of-the-art coffee bar, and more. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. 
Next month, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art is set to open We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, of which there are only 11 known in the world. The exhibition will also include original prints of other founding documents, including the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the proposed Bill of Rights alongside the Constitution print from July 2nd till January 2nd, 2023. The exhibition is organized by Polly Nordstrand, curator of Native American art, and I asked her what it's like to handle documents that are centuries old and so valuable. Polly, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think the million-dollar question is, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the process behind curating such a selection of such rare documents? It's been a bit of a whirlwind, and we're so excited to have uh, such rare documents and the um, importance of the exhibition and people engaging with the Constitution at this moment in our history has been so exciting that other uh, major collectors of historic documents have also uh, jumped in to offer their, you know, objects from their collection. I'm curious what your favorite and what piece you're most excited for besides, you know, these rare and and exclusive documents? Oh, that's a really hard question. (laughs) Uh, It's sort of like asking someone, who is your favorite child? But um, my, as curative native art, I'm really excited to have Shelley Nero's Border Series as part of the exhibition. This was a project she did for um, a a museum or a gallery up in Buffalo, New York, and it's looking at what does it mean to be a part of a community, even when there's differences. And she's specifically looking at borders, but we could think about those borders as differences of opinion, differences of agendas. I think of them as uh, showing how we come to understanding with each other as human beings and places. And the overall idea is there's a a message about um, strength and unity and collaboration. I think that's what's so interesting. Um, And I'm wondering how audiences that aren't citizens can also relate to this exhibition and, and some of the art they'll see. Yeah, I think that this exhibition will be relevant to everyone because we're all thinking about people in, you know, across the globe, you know, we're not isolated anymore in terms of like where we hear our news from. I think that the situation in the Ukraine is something that we all feel for those people and other places um, across the globe, especially when we're thinking about um, the ideals of what the nation was founded on. So we have the inalienable rights, right, that are Really, in my opinion, I feel that they're human rights, and that was what was being asserted back in the 18th century, but we still hold those to be something that we aspire to accomplishing in the 21st century and beyond. And I think that if we're uh, looking at these artworks, a lot of them have to do with communities seeking social justice for everyone. Holly, just how rare are these documents? I mean, how many copies of these documents are available in the world? So that varies across um, which document, but in terms of the Constitution, 
there were, of this first version, there were 100 that were printed, and these were disseminated across the, um, the various states to different um, constituents in order to for them to read it. And, you know, it was like their form of communication at the time was newspapers and print. And so there were 100 copies originally printed, and today there are 11, 11 surviving copies. And this is the, the copy that we're showing will be the only one that's in private hands. So others are held in institutions. And this was one of the major reasons why the lender really wanted to make it accessible to people is because uh, he, he does realize the honor he has in owning this, but he wants to make it accessible to all people. You know, word finally gets down that the these um, artifacts will be at Crystal Bridges. What are your ex- what are your feelings? Is there any excitement um, from you as a curator that you'll be working with these? Uh, there's definitely excitement about having these uh, important works, um, and we've been you know as we've been working on the exhibition, we've been thinking about them in terms of fragile pieces of paper that need protection. Um, but seeing, you know, seeing the words and knowing that these, you know, these were printed 200 years ago and the significance that they played in all of our lives is something that I think we won't really truly understand until we see it. I came to understand uh, a deeper significance to the Constitution when I was um, listening to a radio show called The Jefferson Hour, and the host of that show um, interrupted his programming to really try to convey the significance of what was happening in our um, government about uh, what, how we as citizens really needed to be aware of what was happening as citizens, uh, in terms of our connection to the Constitution and its uh, ability to hold things together for our, for our nation. Um, I really hadn't thought about it for a long, long time. And um, so when I was given this opportunity, I wanted uh, people to really have the opportunity to reflect on what the words mean for all of us. And, um, of course, I had to review a lot of what would be considered my, um, you know, probably eighth grade education at this point <laughs> and think through, like, oh, yeah, I remember this um, or, oh, I had forgotten that. And so I think it's an opportunity for us all to, like, come back to that founding moment of what does it mean uh, to be a part of this nation and, um, then to think about well, how as a how do I as a citizen participate in um, in this world and in making the aspirations of this nation possible for everyone? Um, we do also talk about the complications that and the things that were happening at the time that these were written. Of course, there was still slavery, and that was a major debate. Um, and we know that that has had impact across time um, in economics, um, in education, in civil rights, and that these, the struggles for equality for everyone is a continuing process. So that's something that I'm, I'm hopeful that people will see as there wasn't a moment where a perfect nation was formed, 
but that we are all a part of it. Polly, how does your role, a kind of newer role as a curator of Native American art, relate back and influence um, influence this exhibition and maybe the perspectives going into working with these pieces? Uh, as the curator of Native art, I did definitely want to make sure that um, Native artists were part of the exhibition and that people would understand um, maybe some things that haven't been taught to them in school. So because of my knowledge of Native um, history, I knew about the influence of Native nations on the formation of the concept of American democracy. So we're highlighting uh, mainly um, Haudenosaunee, otherwise known as Iroquois, and we're highlighting some of their um, leaders and artists um, so that people will have an understanding that there's also an indigenous um, link to American democracy. And this was the idea of ha- being uh, having representation um, as part of gov- uh, governance. I spoke to Polly Nordstrand, Crystal Bridges curator of Native American art last week via Zoom. We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy is set to open July 2nd until January 2nd, 2023. News is now instantaneous and new sources are popping up every day. Social media shouts the latest headlines, subscription services send flash news to your phone. But even in this instant messaging world, you still tune to 91.3 for the quality reporting that gives you the insights on the world around you. This reporting comes with a price. The most significant source of funding for the reporting you hear on KUAF comes from listeners just like you. So please support the news on KUAF during our June fundraising month. It takes just a couple of minutes when you give online at supportkuaf.com. The latest episode of the KUAF-produced podcast, Resilient Black Women, considers rest, what it means to rest, how to rest, and the incredible value of rest. The program hosts, Denisha Simpson and Joy McGowan, continue their exploration of mental health and why rest, even in small amounts, is vital to our well-being. In this excerpt from the latest podcast, Joy has just asked Anisha what she thinks of when she thinks of rest. Um, I think it's a really um, important topic for women, especially coming, well, I say we're coming out of the pandemic, but I don't want to talk too soon, right? And so I think it's been very trying for everyone, but I can only speak for women because I'm a woman. And so I think that um, this is really important just to talk about and make space for what does rest look like for you? And how do you find yourself getting rest? And what are the barriers and things like that? Mm -hmm, For sure. How would you define rest? Rest is not just sleeping. Um, So I think for me, I feel rested when I feel safe, when I feel protected, when I feel visible, um, understood, when I feel like there's fairness surrounded around me and mm-hmm. I have opportunities, um, and when I can unplug. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even just like listening to you describe that, I'm just recognizing how you are saying that rest kind of hits a multiple different levels like it's not just sleep I feel like everything that I researched just kept saying that phrase over and over again Mm -hmm. like it's not just sleep it's not just sleep Mm -hmm. um and then I want to add to that like it's also not just 
that's edging out on Netflix. Right. <laughs> like maybe that can be like a form of rest for some people, but it's not the only way. Even and then all the things you said really reminded me of like of like attachment. You talked a lot mm-hmm. about safety and feeling safe to like achieve and opportunities and like I have things that are within my reach like that's different I don't know if I've ever heard rest expressed like that Mm -hmm. where do you feel like that come from from you um just paying attention to my body and recognizing mm-hmm. when my body feels calm and downregulated is when I have all those factors that I just stated um, mm-hmm. surrounding me. No, I love that. I would say to add to your definition of rest, I feel like rest is really holistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just like my biological, physical body, but kind of some things that we've talked about with Resilient Black Women in our most recent um, event that we did. We talked about the bio, psycho, social, spiritual model. Mm -hmm. And I feel like rest is how do I get rest in all of those spaces? So like biologically, what do I need to do so that my physical person, that she is okay? So Mm -hmm. me saying like physically, I'm really tired because my back hurts because I'm carrying a baby. (laughs) Right. I can't really change that (laughs) until she is born. Um, But then also looking at my psychological self, like, which typically I just kind of describe that as just the the way I talk to myself. Like, Mm -hmm. what is my own inner voice? Um, Is my inner voice, like, critical or is it very compassionate? Um, And so is there a way that I can get rest, like, even in my psychological, mental health space? Um, And for that, I would say, like, I try to do... Like I'm in therapy, I have a therapist, um, and that is how I kind of try to keep that part of myself intact. And so we have that biopsychosocial. I feel like social, at least what we've learned a lot in the research, is that for women, social cannot just be like um, having time with friends, but it also right. has to be that we have meaningful work. Absolutely. Um, and we find a way to dig in deep into in a career or even if you are a stay-at-home mom and you you don't mm-hmm. work outside of the house, like what you typically find is that even stay-at-home moms have some type of meaningful work either Absolutely. in their home or outside of their home. Um, and I was just really impressed with the research of like how important that was like it mm-hmm. wasn't just about me having good friendships normally I describe like the social aspect of myself as finding rest of like how do I find rest in relationships um I don't know if you agree with this but I feel like when I was going through grad school I realized that relationships are really taxing for me mm-hmm. and it wasn't until I realized like oh that's because I'm only in relationships with people that I'm giving nonstop right. to. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like and I that's don't, exhausting. Not that that is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not how it's supposed to be. And right. when I found relationships that gave back to me and was mm-hmm. like life-giving, I was like, "Oh, I, I do like having friends. I like right. going out with people who, like, I feel like I get to unload and they get to unload mm-hmm. and we, we do this together. And so having these these meaningful contacts, which I feel like has been hard during COVID, of, like, what do people feel comfortable with and whatnot. Um, but but I feel like that's, a, that's another part of rest, that social. So he said biopsychosocial. Um, what's the other one? Even spirituality. Spirituality. Yeah. Which I feel like, so, okay, so for us, well, I mean, we both have different spiritual dis- like traditions, yes, right? So do. I grew up in mm-hmm. a traditionally Pentecostal black church that was a part of a, 
um, majority white denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you grew up in a local... Like black missionary, black um, missionary black Baptist church. church. Yeah, yes. Baptist mm-hmm. church. Yeah. So, I mean, traditionally, like we both even like kind of defer how we were raised, mm-hmm. but... And I also feel like I want to make room for people who may not have either one of those right. viewpoints, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe you didn't go to any kind of church. <laughs> you don't believe in this Christian God, mm-hmm. um, but maybe you believe in something, um, some type of higher being, some type of higher power, and that that's important to you. And so I love thinking through how does my spirituality make room for my rest? Because mm-hmm. I think as a young adult in college— I I did not have that view that, like, God made space for rest for me, that that's what he would have wanted um, of me, and that, and that had to change. Like, obviously, that's not true, <laughs> and I learned another way, um, and now I feel like just within my own tradition, like, I see rest all over the Bible. <laughs> like, of course, I need to be taking mm-hmm. breaks and, like, taking care of myself. Like, of course, like, this is something that God himself— um, wants for me and wants for his people. Um, and so oftentimes, especially when I talk with clients who, again, may not have that same Christian viewpoint, I'm always asking them, like, spiritually, like, where, where are you? And how right. does that impact how you view? Because sometimes I feel like our spirituality either can support or, like, me early on in my life, like, it, it hurt. Yeah, it can hinder it, the rest. Yeah, it did not help me mm-hmm. rest at all. I thought I needed to keep working. I needed to do all these things, mm-hmm. and and it just it just wasn't true. And so I also just love the idea of, like, giving people the freedom to, to change whatever they thought they believed right. at one point. Like, we don't have to be stuck with beliefs. Like, mm-hmm. you can grow, you can change, you can find a different way. And so, y'all, so long story, <laughs> rest for us as we talk about it today, we're really trying to look at it from like a more holistic viewpoint. Um, what are these areas in your life um, that you are making space for rest? Um, I was recently listening to a different podcast who are talking about self-care. And the lady was so challenging because she's like, as long as you have like five minutes, like, you can make time to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm. Right. Like, I think time is probably one of the barriers that absolutely. we would all say. Yeah. What, what would you say? I would absolutely agree with that with time. Because um, the first thing when you ask clients, like, OK, what does that look like for you taking care of self? And they said, especially I feel like with moms, mm-hmm. they're like, time. I don't have any time to take care of myself. I have to do X, Y, and Z. And so um, for me, I even started with just 60 seconds, just pausing (laughs) in the day. And during that time period, that was my rest. And you can hear the rest of the latest episode of Resilient Black Women by downloading it or subscribing to it through your preferred podcast distributor resilient black women hosted by joy mcgowan and denisha simpson it's produced by kuaf you can learn more about all of our podcasts by going to kuaf.com ozarks at large is underwritten in part by the walton family charitable support foundation kuaf is supported by shiloh museum of ozark history inviting everyone in the ozarks to explore the museum and become part of its story by becoming a member. Members receive a discount on Shiloh store purchases, invitations to members-only events, and reduced fees on workshops and programming. For more information, shilohmuseum.org slash welcome dash home. 
This is Ozarks at Large. Ava May Masters is a student at Lincoln Junior High School in Bentonville, the reigning USA national preteen, and is passionate about inclusivity. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spoke to Ava May and asked what got her started doing pageants. So it was actually very, very random. One of my good friends did pageants and I went to go watch her and thought it was so cool. So I started my very first pageant. It was the Miss Heart of the Ozarks pageant. Um, I competed in the preteen division, knew nothing about pageants whatsoever, Um, did my dance sassy walk on stage and ended up winning. So it was very, very cool. And in fact, Miss America that year was actually there to crown me Savvy Shields. That's awesome. How old were you when that happened? Seven. Seven. Okay. So you go from, you see a friend do it, you think, hey, that looks cool. I want to try that. What was it about the pageantry that seemed like something you wanted to try? I've always loved being on stage ever since I was little because I am a dancer. And honestly, I was seven. So I Like once my friends did it, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. I want to get up out there on that stage and I want to do that. Like the crowns interested me and just everything about pageantry was really just so cool to me in my seven-year-old brain. So I come from uh, a sports background. I played baseball um, and, and playing in different cities and playing in different areas. You got to see people who you may have only got to see in that situation. Did you find yourself making friends with, you know, folks that you competed against or you went to different areas and you made friends that way? Tell me a little bit about what it was like to like connect with people who had that similarity of like you did pageants. Yeah, for sure. And also because I'm a dancer, there are a ton of dancers in pageantry. So I knew girls from previous pageants I had competed in. Um, I knew girls from social media that I had already talked to. So going into it, I did already know a few of the contestants and they were like so, so sweet. Like it's really like that at most pageants. You get to know your girls quite well um, during rehearsals and during your interview because you're all going through the exact same thing at the exact same time. So you talked a little bit about you'd competed before, you'd competed three different times and uh, and finally won. What is it like losing? I went into my very first national pageant. UNM was my first one as a princess. I was one of the older ones, but it was my first national pageant and I had very low expectations as to how I was going to do. I had the best week at nationals. I was so drawn to it. It really is just so fun. And at the end of the week, I got second runner-up at my first national pageant. So, yes, it was losing, but when you're competing against 50 girls and it's your first national pageant, it felt like a win. Like, it was so cool, and I was beyond proud of myself. Yeah, talk a little bit about those uh, those expectations. I think... I think that's really important, and perhaps your your experience doing dance probably helped with that as well. That, you know, if it's your first pageant, you know, you come in with this area of, you know, if I get anywhere close, if I get top ten, that's a win. Is that kind of how you looked at it when you when you came in for the first time? Oh yeah, for sure. I definitely had very low expectations of like, if I get top 16, like that's great. Like that was like my big goal and like getting second runner up was amazing. And then I came back the next year and was competing as a preteen. So I had aged up a level, level, yeah, yeah. division and was now the youngest in my age division. So I knew that and I knew like 
it was very different coming in knowing that everybody knew who you were versus the year before nobody knew who I was. But yeah, it was really, really cool. And I, it was nice to be in an older division, getting to hang out with girls that were older and more my age. But I ended up getting top six. So that was really, really cool. And even then I was proud of myself because I knew I was the youngest in my division. What do you learn from those experiences of coming in sixth, coming second runner-up? What do you learn from those experiences that kind of help lead you to winning? Yeah, so I definitely think that the closer and closer I get and like knowing that I have the capability to do good um, is definitely just a push. So I think that that's part of what determined me to keep coming and coming back again, just because not only is UNM a great pageant system, but when you know like, oh, wait, I'm actually good at this. Like I can do this. It's definitely a push and like gives me more confidence. Set the scene for us a little bit at the national level. You're going up against 49 other girls. Tell us a little bit about what's what's going through your head as you're there. What, you know, what are you hoping for when you're at that national level? Being at nationals, it is stressful because like you're competing um, and you want to do your best. You want to present yourself well the entire week while you're there. But UNM does a great job of making sure that you are truly having fun while you're there. We have parties almost every night and our rehearsals are usually themed. So we always have like lots of fun at those. We actually had like Minnie and Mickey at one of our parties this year because it was like in Disney. So they invited them there and they always just make sure that we're having our best time so it definitely distracts us from like the actual stress and being with like 50 other girls like you get to know each other very very well um, and they become your best friends so like it's more like you're hanging out with your best friends for a whole week and just having like a bunch of sleepovers with your friends in Disney World rather than like competing against them. Yeah I mean even if you come in 50th you got a trip to Disney World right? (laughs) Um, So tell me about the experience of you know you come down to the last minute and you find out that you win. What's that emotion feel like? Were you surprised? Were you hopeful? Tell me a little bit about like hearing your name called to win. Yeah, that was actually insane. So preliminaries night, they give you like all your optional awards and like how you did in prelims and like they tell you kind of like your runway-ish score. And that night I came home with all this stuff in my hands and I was like, whoa, this is cool. Like I had won a Flirt Top Model Award and I actually just got back from Atlanta, Georgia um, to model for a Um, prom and pageant store in Georgia so that was so cool so I was so proud of myself for that and I was like well if I don't win I'm still going to Georgia so that that was cool and then I had also won um, the fun fashion and headshot picture so I knew that my fun fashion had done well the only like thing that had like bummed me down was that I didn't win interview and like interview is a huge concept in um pageantry so like that one was the only one I was like "Mm, dang but I came back the next day I competed and I was in top two with the interview winner holding her hands and I was like no she got this she won interview and she was actually a former national title holder too so I was like no she's got this like she's so good like so I was saying Arkansas 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 over over and over in my head assuming they would call me as first runner-up and then they called they didn't call Arkansas I was like wait, what, what just happened? And I remember looking at my mom, like, is this for real? Like what's going on? And oh, I was just so happy and like, so, so grateful and excited. Like it was just all kind of a blur and that like within that hour and, and, but it was so fun. It was so cool. How does doing pageantries 
uh, doing pageants and, and modeling and these sorts of things, how does this impact your daily life? I mean, what, is, what does school look like <laughs> for you? <laughs> so I do very well at keeping my grades up, and I travel a lot because of my new national title. And my teachers, I was beyond blessed this year with amazing teachers that are very, very supportive and very lenient about all of my missing school every single Friday and Monday to be in a different state. But I do have to do lots and lots of makeup work at home doing homework. Um, But it is stressful, but it's 110% worth it. Like, it's the best thing ever. You've started your own nonprofit. Why the focus on inclusivity for you? So, Inclusion Me at the Thigh was started because of a little boy with Down syndrome. Um, I met him in the second grade, and he was one of the sweetest guys ever. And, like, we definitely did become very, very close, and I'm so grateful for that. But as, like, the year went on, like, he was getting bullied because of his differences. Um, And that was, like, my first kind of, like, well, like, like, he's only getting bullied because, like, he has Down syndrome. And... Like, as I got older, realizing, like, oh, it's not just, like, Down syndrome and disabilities. Like, it's whatever your differences were, whether that's um, your race, your gender, your – if you have a disability. So after that, I kind – and after I got into pageants, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to focus on. This is what I want to talk to people about. Do you feel any sort of, like, pressure when it comes to, to this sort of stuff that, you know, that – that you do have people who are looking up to you at this point. I don't think I had people looking up to me when I was your age. Um, how does that How does that impact you? Does that inspire you? Does that make you nervous? What's What sort of emotion does that lay on you? I mean, I'm still 12, so, like, it's still, like, so different. But as of right now, I just think it's so cool that, like, you're looking up to a 12-year-old who, like, has a normal life like everybody else, but hobbies are just different and is passionate about inclusivity and kindness. And I think, like, right now it's just, like, so cool. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. Like, that's usually my response to anybody who's, like, thanking me for, like, what I've done in their lives. Yeah. What's next for you? (sighs) So pageantry is definitely not over. I am 100% coming back. Don't know when, don't know where, but as of right now, focusing on going into eighth grade, my last year before high school, and dance. So about to have tryouts for my junior high again and focusing on competitive dance. So that's probably going to be my main focus. Ava May, thank you so much. This has been a really cool conversation. Of course. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet you. That was Ava May Masters, a student at Lincoln Junior High in Bentonville, and the reigning USA National Preteen speaking with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. Enrollment of Hispanic and Latino students in advanced placement classes in Arkansas is on the rise. State Secretary of Education Johnny Key told lawmakers yesterday that the dramatic increase in participation is a result of English language learner programs created by the state. According to the Arkansas Department of Education, English language learner programs help students from immigrant families learn English while learning material from their classes. Arkansas has one of the best EL programs, support programs, I believe, in the, in the nation. And as those students are coming to our state, they're getting immersed in Um, the support that they need to perform, to improve, to grow in in their academics. But Secretary Key says there are challenges in the hiring of teachers, which could limit the number of AP courses offered. AP teachers are typically those who have um, 
longevity and uh, are very solid, uh, beyond solid in the content. Mm -hmm. And uh, as as the pipeline issues continue to, to challenge us, that is continuing to be an issue. Many of our IP courses are offered virtually. Governor Asa Hutchinson told reporters last week teacher salary increases will be one of the items considered if he and legislative leaders are able to call a special session to decide how to spend the state's expected budget surplus. Comedian Brian Regan returns to Northwest Arkansas this weekend. He'll be at the Walton Arts Center Sunday night. Doors will open at 6. The show is scheduled to begin at 7. Brian is among the most beloved comics working. His most recent special, On the Rocks, is streaming on Netflix now. Brian's with us on the phone. Welcome to Ozarks at Large. Well, hello, Kyle. How are you? I'm good. You know, as I was getting ready for this conversation... I, I wanted to make sure I didn't ask the same old questions that you've heard all the time. And then it hit me that on a very small scale, I was trying to do what you do all the time, which is create material we haven't heard before that resonates with us and perhaps most importantly makes us laugh. And it seems to me that that could be a very um, exhausting process. <laughs> well, um yeah, I'm exhausted right now. Um, no, I, I, it, I'm. It's earlier here where I am. I uh, woke up. The sun is coming up, and uh, as we speak, I'm enjoying this conversation. In terms of the uh, material and all of that, uh, yes, it's a constant quest, you know, to try to come up with something new and interesting and hopefully funny and. Uh, that's that's always what I'm going after. You've been working for some time, and and on one of your previous visits here, you started the show at Walton Arts Center with observations about landing at our airport, X&A, and the drive from the airport to Fayetteville. And it was very specific to here. It wasn't something that you could, you know, plug and play, say, if you were in Columbus, Ohio, or Tucson, Arizona. And it landed with the audience and made the performance very special from the beginning. I'm wondering, is that something you try to do with every show you do? It depends. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I try not to uh, have a specific formula that I have to adhere to. I mean, there are times when, you know, something happens to me that's specific or regional and uh, I feel like sharing it. And then there are times where, that doesn't happen. So I, you know, I, I, I try to have every, I, I just try to do what feels natural when I'm on stage and I, I try not to force a formula or anything in, into the equation. When you're on stage, do you try to make eye contact? Do you want to know that it's a full house? How does that work for you? Well, I, every theater is different. Every venue is different. And, um, sometimes you can, see people in the front sometimes you can't i've done shows where you literally can't see a single person because of the way the lights are set up um that's quite disconcerting but what you do is you fake it you know you get on stage you know hopefully where the people are seated and you uh you do your best to make it look like you're looking around um <laughs> And I hope it comes off that way, but there are times when you can't see anybody. That That's unusual where you see literally zero people. I usually like to at least see the first few rows of people. Um, and yeah, I like to look at people when they're in the uh, audience. 
Do you keep notes on places you've been, venues or cities like this theater is like this or this restaurant has a great dessert, that sort of thing? <laughs> um, I, I did that more when I was in a city for a longer period of time. You know, I, I used to do comedy clubs and when I was in a comedy club, I'd be there for several days. And so you start to learn more about the community when you're there for several days. Now that I do one nighters theaters, it's really a weird experience. You know, you, you, you come into town, you do the show and sometimes you're blown out of town right after the show to head to the next venue, the next city. And, uh, you don't really get to experience places or keep track of places the way people might think it, it's, uh, it's a bizarre life. I, I'm not complaining. I love right. it. I love doing what I do. But uh, you don't really get to experience communities the way people would think. I, you know, the recent HBO documentary about George Carlin. There's a clip about from him talking about being a class clown and how he was. That's where he, you know, got his his enthusiasm and his momentum. And I thought, if I was a comedian, and I'm an entirely unfunny person, if I was a comedian. If I was off stage, the last thing I would want to do is try to make people laugh. I just want to try to be as anonymous as possible. And I wonder, do you have an approach to your life off stage? Do you want to make people laugh? Do you not? Does it matter? Uh, that's a good question. It, it depends. If people know me, mm. you know, like family and friends, they, they know me. They know that I'm a comedian and they know that... Sometimes I'm funny and sometimes I'm not. And uh, I don't feel pressure one way or the other. It's when you meet new people who find out you're a comedian mm. and oftentimes they will have a heightened expectation. You know, they'll think, oh, funny guy. He's going to make us laugh, you know, while he's standing here with us. And um, I'm not I'm not that good. You know, uh, I can think of things that I can do on stage and, you know, and uh, I think I'm pretty good at that. I, I made a nice career out of it. I enjoy it a lot. But to be funny all the time around people who just point at you and say, be funny now in this moment, I, I'm not qualified. <laughs> well, I mean, if I meet a plumber, I'm not going to say instantly, go fix a leak for me. Let me see you fix, fix a faucet. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what's so unusual about it. But with comedy, it's different. I mean, comedy, people think if you're a comedian, then then you are not everybody thinks this way, but some people think, well, you must just be funny all the time. And uh, I think that would be a weird personality <laughs> for somebody that's just constantly being funny. That would be I think that would be torture. Brian Regan is funny. He'll be at the Walton Arts Center Sunday night. Doors at 6. Show scheduled to begin at 7. You can find out more at waltonartcenter.org. His latest special on The Rock, streaming on Netflix. You can find out much more about him at brianregan.com. Brian, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to your return. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. I really enjoyed talking with you, man. Thank you. And Brian Regan and I did talk a little bit more today. We're going to hear a longer conversation with him Sunday morning at 9 on Weekend. Ozarks at Large on KUF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, 
and Combs. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to today's show include Jacqueline Froelich and Matthew Moore. The Resilient Black Women podcast is produced by Lee Wood at the Carver Center for Public Radio. The latest episode is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Additional material today arrived with the help of the KUAR news crew in Little Rock. Thank you for listening. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Kellams. We will return tomorrow. Speaking of returning... Rachel, I got to return after a lengthy vacation. I want to thank you and Timothy and Matthew and Daniel and Jacqueline and everybody else who worked on the show so hard and let me escape. Not escape. That that's a, that doesn't sound right. But, you know, let me have a break. A we, rest. We had fun making May shows. But it's great to have you back. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've got so much more material coming up. Uh, earlier today, you and I talked with a pair of University of Arkansas instructors who talked about incorporating DEI into the classroom. That was a great conversation. We're going to hear part of that next week. Yes, we will. And also, you and Matthew Moore talked with um, Dr. Karee Banton uh, this week. Yes, we talked about the Juneteenth celebration at NWAC that is happening this Saturday, the 11th. And we're going to hear that conversation tomorrow? That yes, we'll hear? Have it. we'll hear that conversation tomorrow. All right. I just have to ask, what was the most challenging thing of the last four weeks? Most challenging? Hold well, maybe there weren't challenges. You guys just sailed through. That's wonderful. I'll tell you what my biggest challenge was of the last four weeks. I found out. I mean, I love my job, and I there were aspects of the job I missed. I mostly, I most missed talking to people, and specifically my coworkers. Absolutely. I just, I, I, which, hang on. I spent four weeks with my wife, and it was wonderful. We found out that we were, for 25 years, we've been married, and, it, and we're going to be married for another 25 more. So I thoroughly found out how much I enjoyed her being my partner in life. But I did miss just having the conversations that we have around the station, and. Uh, you know, I want to be back here for another 33 years-ish. All right, that's time to go. Rachel, thank you so much. Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you for listening.